Okay, hello everybody to a new episode of The Solar Journey. And uh, today we have on board Charles Charlie Gay, a living legend um, in the PV business. Hi, Charlie. <laughs> How are you, Torsten? <laughs> good things, good things. So let me just um, tell you who Charlie Gay is, if you don't know. I guess most of you do know because, uh, as I mentioned, he's been in the PV space um, for a very, very long time. Um, currently, he is the president of Galaxy Energy, um, company based in California, but also the uh, in in, uh, in the US, but also in in China. Um, what Galaxy does, we will learn later. But just as a teaser, it's about magnesium electrodes and energy storage. Yeah, so. If you have been in, in PV solar for some time, you do know Charlie Gay. And if you still don't, then uh, it's about time. Um, here's why. He has over 45 years experience in renewable energy. He has significant private sector experience. For example, he was the president of Applied Solar, the business unit for of applied materials. Um, he was chairman of the technology advisory board for SunPower. And he was uh, president and chief operating officer of Siemens Solar and president of Arco Solar. Um, Charlie was also in the public service space. So he was director of the Department of Energy, Solar Energy Technology Office. And he was the director of the National Renewable Energy Laboratory or NREL in Colorado, USA, which is one of the oldest and most well-known solar energy institutes uh, worldwide but he's also the co-creator of the green star foundation an organization that delivers solar power and internet access to villages scaling micro enterprise in the developing world yeah and uh, so by by training um he's a uh, physical chemist so he's got a phd in chemistry and uh, he holds many, many patents. And his first peer-reviewed paper dates back to 1966. Yeah, and he also got plenty of awards. So for example, the US National Academy of Engineering. So he was elected to the US National Academy of Engineering. And he won the Charles Greeley Abbott Award of the American Solar Energy Society. And Lesser known, he was also key in getting LED flashes into the solar cell market in more detail. Um, <laughs> it took him five seconds to make sure that my own company, Wavelets, got to the initial seed investment. I'm not sure, uh, Charlie, I, if you are aware of this. Um, yeah. No. <laughs> You're not aware. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's uh, almost 11 years back. That was at the um, PVSEC conference here in Hamburg, Germany. And I approached you back then and I said, hey, Charlie, in a few minutes, I've got a guy coming with me and Jan Sutus, the co-founder or the originator of, of Wavelabs. We want to get his money. So he does the initial seed investment uh, for Wavelabs. So we returned and uh, you saw us at the Applied Materials booth and you opened up your arms and said, I love those guys. And I think that's... <laughs> And I think that's when our uh, senior investor, Herr Hülsmann, um, had no chance then to uh, give us the millions and billions of these dollars um, to get Wavelab started. 
So thanks a lot again for this. But anyhow, oh, I think you're, great. yeah, but I think your other achievements are even larger that I lined out up front. Yeah, so um, Charlie, when did you get started in solar and why? I got started in 1974. Yeah. Um, it was, um, right after the first oil embargo, which was October of 1973. Yeah. And um, I had gotten uh, my PhD working on the thermodynamic properties of fluids near the critical point and studying heat capacity and the, uh, the uh, effect of compressibility on these fluids. It's something that doesn't have much of a connection at all to uh, photovoltaics. But it turns out it does have a connection now, finally, 45 years later, to uh, the concentrating solar field where people use uh, supercritical CO2 for uh, the working fluid rather than steam. Anyway, mm -hmm. long story short, I went uh, to, I got my degree, PhD, I went to look for a job. And the only job that really could make any use of how I spent so much time getting my PhD yeah. was injecting steam or CO2 in the ground to get more oil out of the ground. Wow. And, okay. um, I had an interview in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, which is kind of a isolated remote area where Phillips Petroleum had their headquarters and they offered me a job but as I was uh, thinking about it and on my way back to uh, Los Angeles, where I've lived most of my life, uh, I ought to uh, look and see if there's something else I could do. And I picked up the uh, Sunday edition of the Los Angeles Times and looked for jobs. One of them was an advertisement from Spectrolab for somebody to weld solar cells together for uh, satellites and make them more resistant okay. uh, yeah. to laser attack and melting of the interconnects. So I, I rewrote my resume a little bit there to highlight what I knew about metallurgy and materials and uh, went for the job interview at Spectrolab and was offered that job uh, figuring out how to weld uh, solar cells together. Mm. About um, three or four months after I was at Spectre Lab, my boss said, you know, I, I probably should tell you why we hired you. And I said, oh, by all means, I'd be very keen on the feedback. And he said, well, when you came, uh, it was clear you had the technical knowledge, but you were wearing an orange pair of pants and a polyester shirt. And we figured if if you didn't know the technical stuff, you'd be quite entertaining anyway for <laughs> the rest of the group. Uh, and uh, part of that's because I'm colorblind. <laughs> so, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that ended up working out well. This, the task of welding uh, was a two-year program that had been funded uh, by the Air Force. And it maybe took three or four months to figure out uh, how to set up a, a, a parallel gap welder and weld solar cells. And my boss said, you can use the rest of the year and a half, just um, follow the materials around Spectrolab, uh, learn the processes, whatever you'd like there. 
uh, it went all the way from uh, Chakrovsky growth of silicon to um, assembly of um, the uh, power systems for communication satellites. Yeah. So I got a chance to learn crystal growth, wafering, uh, solar cell making, uh, design of power systems uh, from the, the people who really knew what they were doing there. And uh, that has served the foundation of my knowledge base yeah. <laughs> from that point forward. I haven't, I, I joke with people, but it, I haven't had to learn a whole lot more uh, since I, I did that. And uh, I, I was very glad it, it seemed like solar would be a possible uh, path to address the uh, impact of the oil embargo. Uh, and um, it was a field that um, was material science oriented. I was interested in it. All the A students were becoming nuclear engineers and building nuclear power plants. So the competition was, wasn't so much either. So okay. uh, that, that's how I got started. Excellent, excellent. So basically Spectrolab was a, uh, today we would say a vertically integrated solar cell manufacturer if they started on, well, except for this feedstock, but then they had everything in-house from uh, crystal growth to modules. Yeah. Yes. Cool. And it was all for mostly for satellite application as a yes, it yeah. was almost all except for the beginnings of a, of a terrestrial solar program. At that uh, point in time, uh, NASA had set up three uh, ground based uh, large antennas to communicate with uh, spacecraft as they were orbiting the Earth. Uh, one was here in California, a place called Goldstone, which is out in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Mm -hmm. uh, one in Australia that uh, shows up now and then uh, not too far outside of Canberra. And then the third one was in a very rural, isolated area of Nigeria. Mm. Uh, people were quite poor, and uh, the program was led by the the NASA Lewis Research Center in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And they came to Spectra Lab and said, you know, we would like to be able to do something to bring electricity to this rural village. And um, maybe an application besides lighting that would work well is uh, to uh, grind the husks off of rice. So uh, part of the project that I worked on uh, after welding cells was working with a team looking to get cost out of the solar cells uh, in order to power this rice husker in Nigeria. Mm. And NASA could exchange, you know, some improved infrastructure for the rights to put the antenna on their uh, land. Mm. And that's really a lot of how uh, some of the early work at replacing uh, vacuum deposited metals or electroplated metals for contacts, um, evaporated tantalum pentoxide for AR coatings uh, with much lower cost approaches towards uh, processing, metallization, um, damage removal, texture etching. At that point, um, they, the actual chemistry of what 
uh, enables texturing to occur was uh, puzzling to everybody. And uh, so I had a chance to work on some of those kinds of things and also to see the benefit um, of the impact of solar in this rural community in Nigeria. Yeah, wonderful. So from uh, satellite space uh, to terrestrial, one of the early uh, terrestrial applications. And um, what was the efficiency back then for the uh, satellites or back then for the Nigerian uh, application? For the satellite side, um, I had a project to see uh, how efficiency varied with thickness. Yeah. Uh, and so it's actually where uh, the first, uh, I think the thinnest solar cells I made were about 35 microns thick okay. uh, silicon. Okay. And um, they were about 16% efficient and at um, 150 or thicker, they were a little more than 18% efficient cells. Okay. Yeah, and uh, the terrestrial modules uh, with the lower cost metallization and um, the, the sort of glass front packaging uh, were around 10 or 11 percent efficient. Uh, okay. And uh, that uh, was sort of a broad span of activities. Um, the management of SpectroLab changed from a company called Textron, which uh, was a conglomerate of everything from Bell Helicopter to other businesses, to Hughes Aircraft. Hughes wanted to have its own in-house uh, solar cell satellite, uh, communication satellite uh, capabilities. And when Hughes came and took over Spectrolab, a, a lot of the people I worked for uh, lost their jobs to longtime Hughes executives. That happened to occur in 1977. And in 1978, the second oil embargo took place. And uh, most of the guys who left Spectrolab started terrestrial solar companies. Mm -hmm. And I joined a fellow named Bill Yerkes, who was one of those folks to leave Spectrolab. He had been president of Spectrolab. Uh, and he started a company called Solar Technology International with, oh, about uh, six or seven people, uh, half of them from uh, Taco Bell nearby who are <laughs> making tacos and burgers uh, to start making solar panels. And um, when the second oil embargo took place, Almost every oil company uh, under the sun wanted to diversify into high tech. Uh, Atlantic Ridgefield was one of those and started Arco Solar, um, uh, Shell, Exxon, Mobil, Total, uh, Shoa. Um, they all had initiatives to uh, get involved in high tech and manufacturing, which is a very different kind of business than the oil and gas business. Uh, but they brought a lot of not just long-term consistent financing to support the early startups, but a lot of the know-how for the encapsulation and packaging. So they, they um, uh, coming um, European PV conference, 
the folks in Switzerland who have had some of our modules from Marco Solar. Uh, the first grid connected system in Europe was installed in 1982. Uh, they're reporting on the 40 year results for that system. And we had three different um, encapsulant systems in the modules. Uh, the uh, best of the three is producing 95% today of what it did 40 years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. The worst one is about 85%. Okay. So we have this fabulous existence proof that we know how to design something that will last the length of life that a power plant needs to last or longer, more than yeah. 40 years here. Yeah. And of course, that's the springboard for bankability, for project financing, mm. when you can project what the cash flow is going to look like because you know how much power to anticipate being generated. Yeah, yeah. So let me just uh, recap. So from Spectralab, you moved on to, to Arco Solar? That, that's, yes. That was the next... Uh... Okay. Yeah, so I was hired as, yeah. uh, to run uh, R&D, uh, manufacturing and engineering at yeah. Arco Solar, yeah. and uh, mainly to staff up the company. Yeah. Um, and uh, I spent uh, almost 10 months trying to recruit somebody to come and work with me in this crazy solar business. Yeah. Uh, and uh, people who were getting their PhDs and advanced degrees, as I mentioned, uh, went to RCA, to Bell Labs, to General Electric, to Siemens. And um, after spending that 10 months trying to recruit somebody, my youngest brother uh, was just graduating uh, from MIT with a PhD in inorganic chemistry. And I went to see him and I browbeat him into joining me. So I had my second R&D employee <laughs> to work in, in solar. Then his job was to go recruit people uh, <laughs> to, to come and join this crazy industry. Yeah. At that time, it wasn't an industry. So uh, people leaving school uh, saw solar as a very risky career move. Yeah. But, you know, looking back and thinking about it, the best time to take a, a risky career move, and you can probably speak to this as well, is, is while you're still young and you don't have a lot of children, and you have uh, other uh, responsibilities to occupy your, your brain cycles every day. So uh, the, the buildup of Arco Solar by... Um, the end of 1980, we manufactured one megawatt in one year. Yeah. And of course, you think today, uh, one megawatt is a little less than an hour in <laughs> what in a lot today's of dimensions, yeah. facilities. Yeah. And in um, 1982, as I say, we had our first grid-connected system in Europe. And in uh, 1982, we had our first one megawatt uh, power plant connected to a, a Southern California Edison uh, substation uh, in the transmission system here in uh -huh. California. Yeah. And uh, the chairman of Edison, uh, Bill Gould, gave a, a really nice speech talking about how 
his predecessors in the utility industry spent a hundred years putting up wires and his successors in the utility industry wouldn't have to worry about putting up more wires because they could put the power close to where it was needed. Yeah. So a lot of uh, the visionaries that we benefit from today uh, came out of the oil embargo times, uh, came out of the times of need, and we're sort of in a similar situation of climate change, yeah. needing to attract people to take a risk to mitigate the risk of climate yeah. change. Yeah. Interesting. Hey, by any chance, do you still know who built the inverters for those very first grid connected systems? Because this must have been also like prototypes or could you rely on yeah, they, previous they were uh, The company um, that, that, that there were two major suppliers, neither one of them is still in the business today. Uh, both of them were acquired. Uh, uh -huh. One of them uh, is still uh, operating as part of Siemens power business. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. So, so how, so from Arco Solar, what was the, the peak time? How many people worked at Arco Solar for this one megawatt a year? Uh, we had, um, oh, probably uh, we, we not only, and you, we grew crystal wafers, cells, okay. modules, yeah. and built uh, power systems. Yeah. So it was, uh, and we also developed water pumps, uh, battery storage designs, oh. um, all of the things that we take for granted that, you know, I, today you could go to Grenfos for a solar water pump. Yeah. But in the beginning, uh, there weren't uh, the right pieces of equipment to go with the output of the solar panel. Mm. So in 1982, we had about 600 employees. Mm. Okay. Cool. And then from Arcosola, where, where did you move next? Uh, I went to uh, the National Renewable Energy Lab. Okay. So yeah. the um, NREL got its start also because of the uh, oil embargoes and Jimmy Carter was president. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, lab has its uh, start in 1978. Maybe it was October 77, somewhere right around the, the turn of the year. And um, the um, uh, lab did well during Carter's period, uh, followed by Reagan, who chopped the budget in um, about 75%. So um, when I got to, I was brought to NREL uh, because I had experience in industry, uh, putting business objectives in place and dealing with um, the uh, outcome of the election here in 1994, where uh, there was a, a, a contract with America that uh, also targeted cutting investments in R&D in renewables and NREL's budget uh, was cut by a little more than 30%. There were about a thousand employees at NREL in 1994 when I got there. And so if we were to just take a, a straight ratio there, that would mean 300 people would lose their job. Yeah. So, uh, 
had a chance to sort of restructure a lot of the way business was carried out at NREL to streamline overhead. And at the end of the day, I think I laid off maybe 45 employees instead of 300. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And started um, what was called the Industry Growth Forum, which was a venue to bring venture capital in to meet the people at the lab and the, and the industrial and academic teams who were contracting with the lab to carry out uh, research and uh, applied research and development programs. Uh, and uh, that program, the industry forum still is going um, this, uh, this year, I think uh, has probably been uh, close to 40, 42 of these four, but there's a lot of the networking that got started where investors could meet and learn more about the technologies and could see sort of over the horizon what technologies were coming, um, could participate in helping invest in startups. Yeah. Uh, so that was um, uh, a lot of the experience at NREL was linking more strongly with the finance community and um, industry. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so how did you put up with moving from Los Angeles uh, on the coast to uh, Colorado, the to the mountainous people? Well, like uh, Colorado is absolutely lovely. Uh, yeah. The the snow uh, sort of sublimes off of the ground, you know, so yeah. it, it doesn't form big blocks of ice that are filled with mud. Uh, it, it's uh, one of the best. The living experiences I've, I've had. Yeah. It's very uh, outdoors oriented. There's a lot uh, yeah. to do all year long. Yeah. Um, and Coors Brewery is based right there where Enrol is for a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you started skiing and, and I don't know, maybe you from, switched from surfboard to uh, skiing, yeah. I assume. <laughs> and when I was in college, I actually. I've met my physical ed requirement surfing uh, every Thursday <laughs> so, <laughs> rather than going to class. <laughs> yeah, excellent. All right, so uh, NREL, how many years did you spend at, at NREL? And, uh, four. Four years, yeah, all right. And then you, what was the next station where you uh, then, left your footprint? Yeah. yeah uh, uh, Two things, I started the Green Star Foundation yeah. uh, to essentially bring information and energy together. So mm -hmm. we went to rural villages that didn't have electricity, but they didn't have internet either. And um, sort of set up community centers with solar power and spread spectrum modems that could link the village to um, uh, an area that had some uh, copper infrastructure. Mm. So that uh, we created um, what, what we uh, called digital culture. Went to the village, recorded the music, art, uh, okay. stories, poetry. Mm -hmm. And I came back here to LA and licensed a lot of it to Disney. The royalties from the licensing of the culture of the music went to the village. 
it helped preserve the traditions and the history of the village, of course. But then the village had capital to create microcredit uh, structures, banks that would fund entrepreneurs in rural villages. And they could use the internet access to uh, identify markets for uh, when the best time to bring a harvest in, or bring coffee beans in, uh, how to maximize um, the quality of uh, tomatoes or bell peppers, other crops for international export because they had information and they had their own uh, uh, liquidity, their own uh, capital based on their culture. Yeah. So um, the next thing I did was scale this. It was uh, a result of looking at uh, most of the multilateral development banks, the World Bank, um, Asian American Development Bank, <clears throat> had capitalized funds intended to help support solar and renewables in rural areas. But for a rural villager, if you were to access that money, you were uh, required to show how you would repay the money with the currency risk and with the um, mm. interest rates of a rural village, uh, yeah. which are you know 40 to 70%. And so a rural villager couldn't qualify to receive a loan. So they, um, and so the money was sitting at the World Bank or the um, International Finance Corporation, the private equity arm of the World Bank. Uh, so this idea of Green Star was, how do you start business in a rural village when you have nothing, but you have a lot based on the culture and history and the music of the village. Mm. Uh, and when I would go to a village, I would usually um, have with me a, a laptop, a satellite phone, and a solar panel. Mm. And I'd bring, uh, I'd go to visit the theater arts department of the university uh, that happened to be closest to this isolated area to get a theater arts major, a mime, to come with me to the village. So I would use no spoken words when I got to the village and the mime knew the local language, the local dialect could help translate questions that came and we would act out, um, say if uh, in, a, in a rural Indian village where we did this, um, the, the children are the ones who catch on first to what's going on. Uh, they wanted to know about the soccer game or the cricket test with Pakistan um, and found that they could get the information because they had some energy that could run the equipment to uh, have a computer with uh, a link to the internet. Yeah. And much of what is possible today is also about connecting information with energy. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's part of what I'm doing in my current venture at, at Galaxy Energy. Um, getting to sort of the end game here where our energy networks run autonomously. 
without people needing to intervene into how the network operates. And um, we have a, a pilot underway. Uh, Galaxy has a 50-50 business venture with uh, China, with some folks in China. And we're um, operating in Shanxi province, uh, more or less the middle central section of China. Uh, where I spent most of my time while I was working at Applied Materials because our customers for equipment were almost all in China. Mm. Uh, at one point by 2010, we had over 200 customers, unique manufacturers in China, buying our Bacini screen printers, uh, wire saws, and uh, there was we set up a solar R&D center in Xi'an to support uh, folks all across China. And um, the, when I was there, the governor of the province asked uh, for me to help electrify every unelectrified village in Shanxi province. And I said, if you have the army loan me the helicopters, we can get to every village and electrify more than 2000 villages that didn't have electricity. We did that with solar in less than one year. Okay. So the ability to bring people together to work on things, we have uh, an initiative to couple solar power with uh, smelting of magnesium ore to make magnesium. It's um, uh, in an area called Fugu County, where the uh, Yellow River runs about 150 kilometers through that county. So there's a great pumped hydro uh, opportunity with the Yellow River there. I've been using uh, Andrew Blaker's pumped hydro maps to line out where we can have 24 by 7 power all solar, upgrade the uh, metal making, since it's sort of where the world is today, solar, wind, those are electricity generation. So we're working on maybe a third of the energy consumption. Another third is transportation. So electric vehicles are helping clean up transportation. And the next big uh, nut to crack is cement, steel, metal uh, foundries. So we're working on a metal magnesium, which can be useful in reducing weight in the transportation side, but it's a great hydride material for storing hydrogen. So we have a uh, system to solar pumped hydro to deliver power 24 hours a day and the relationships are there because there are so many dams along the Yalu River already that the links with the utilities are working. And we're um, producing magnesium that's used to reduce the weight of lithium ion uh, cells. And it's used to reduce the mass of the housing. uh, battery is like a solar panel, the cell is the heart of it, and then the package, uh, packaging of a cell calls battery. 
So a, a battery lithium ion case, a lot of the designs are moving from um, uh, small diameter cylinders to uh, long, narrow rectangles mm -hmm. that shorten the distance current has to flow to get to the terminal. And then the housing of the rectangle is made uh, in our prototypes here of a magnesium alloy. So we're getting a lot of the weight out of the lithium ion cell and out of the lithium ion battery. Yeah. So with the, the sort of the network here of bringing solar pumped hydro, producing magnesium for applications that are relevant to transportation. Yeah. And uh, at the outset, it turns out that uh, not only does the Yalu River cross Fugu um, province uh, county, but also the major transmission system that runs from west to east in China crosses Yalu County, and the major gas pipeline crossing China goes through Yalu County. So we're um, working with uh, sort of the uh, blue version of converting natural gas into hydrogen and then propane, butane, longer chain, um, LPG, uh, liquid propane uh, feedstocks, so that we have more hydrogen generated from the pipeline and can use that with the magnesium being produced as a hydrogen storage medium. And we have a catalyst, a magnesium oxide-based catalyst that can also help catalyze the conversion of methane to propane and uh, extraction of hydrogen. And of course, if you just throw magnesium in water, it splits water into hydrogen and makes magnesium oxide, which is useful for construction materials, wallboard, um, uh, in some concentrations to improve cements. So the goal is to have an autonomous energy network demonstration of somewhere around 30 to 40 uh, magnesium metal smelting facilities in Fugu province county being linked to getting their electricity from solar and from pumped hydro used by the generated from the solar and uh, working with some of the early opportunities of hydrogen, um, which can of course just be injected up to 15, maybe 20% into a natural gas pipeline without uh, making major changes to the infrastructure. Mm. And by moving to LPG, moving to propane, um, you, you turn the greenhouse gas potential of methane, which is like 25 times or so CO2 mm. into having almost zero greenhouse impact from propane and from hydrogen. Oh, so okay. we have a, a project to make this network autonomous, that the energy flow can be essentially operated in a microgrid format, which makes it much more resilient. And uh, with the software systems that uh, some of the collaborators I worked with while I was at the DOE 
um, developing the algorithms for um, smart grid autonomy. So the information and energy convergence that I worked on in Green Star for rural village electrification, mm. we're bringing to uh, a county in China to um, demonstrate how much carbon reduction potential can uh, be practical and cost-effective here. Yeah. Um, and continue to scale the adoption of uh, the clean fuels, um, electric vehicles, and of course, expand more PD. Yeah. Hey, so, um, and at the center for, for, for your company you work for now, it's magnesium. It, it sounds like a magic material which can be applied in so many interesting ways for for um yeah energy storage um is is that a newcomer that material in in the in the in the, in the renewal space or is there other companies working on on the the it's application not, the um, application first shows up in uh vehicle weight reduction so sports cars in it's for the Formula chassis One racing yeah. for the chassis so, yeah yeah You can make uh, magnesium alloys with uh, aluminum and zinc are the primary alloy additives yeah. uh, where you have um, anywhere between three and eight percent aluminum and a few percent, maybe three to five percent zinc. You can make um, uh, structural materials to take weight out of cars. Mm. So. Magnesium has uh, quite a long history for uh, aircraft and for uh, racing cars. Yeah. And the materials, I think, you know, I, with the background I had in materials <laughs> going way back, uh, it's, it's just a, a really interesting material, both uh, for the networking with renewables and um, One of the areas of interest I also have is in superconductivity. Uh, mag uh, uh, magnesium diboride uh, has a uh, superconducting transition temperature of around, I don't know, 37, 38 Kelvin. It's relatively high for metals that uh, are used in superconducting. So there's some applications that you know are long-term, but Uh, are also interesting that could help with energy efficiency. But at yeah. the moment, we're just looking to demonstrate this autonomous energy network. Usually, the operator of an electric grid is different than the operator of the gas pipeline is mm. and the uh, owner of uh, hydro generation facilities sometimes is linked to the electric grid, sometimes not. If we could bring together the stakeholders where the load here is the smelter mm -hmm. and the, um, the industry in China today, uh, if the um, amount of pollution being generated to produce electricity, mostly from coal, um, trips a threshold Steel mills are the first things to be shut down. Metal fabrication facilities closed down. 
So we're up there on that third sector of industrial scale, cement, steel, metals, to help them become cleaner. And they're long entrenched industries that don't have a history of changing. So that you know, a CEO at a, at a steel company may be there for 30 years or 40 years, and it worked 30 years ago, so why change it? So the, yeah. the um, opportunity is here. Interestingly enough, because of the roadmap for going to zero carbon by 2060, and because China has a regular five-year planning cycle, they have a, an ability to do long-term planning to get to the objective. And so um, part of what we're doing here is uh, enabling financing from global sources and uh, enabling the link up of know-how for how do you bring the autonomy to bear. So a lot of work that the National Renewable Energy Lab does now, uh, Pacific Northwest Lab, uh, Oak Ridge, Sandia, uh, Argonne Labs, is all, uh, it, it links into grid operation and looking at autonomous microgrids connecting into the electric grid. Yeah. What we're doing is extending that to include gas and to include uh, teaming with the load centers like uh, production of magnesium in this case. Yeah. Give us an idea who is uh... Galaxy uh, Energy, or um, I think there's a mother company. How, how many people, and what's his what's his history? Yeah. Uh, it's um, part of um, a group called Asia Pacific, uh, the Trade and Technology Galaxy Trade and Technology, yeah. which has been around uh, for a little more than three years. Okay, it's a 50-50 venture with some Chinese companies and businesses. And uh, Galaxy, uh, my partners are based in New York, uh, Geneva, and Honolulu. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have um, a network here across the US, but it's mainly the financing network okay. across the US and Europe. Yeah. And the technology implementation group in China for for putting these pieces in place to demonstrate what we can do with a smart uh, utility network of gas and electricity. Okay. And and all in all, so how many people work in 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 China for for Galaxy? Oh, there's a uh, little less than 50 in China. Yeah. And. A little less than uh, two dozen here uh, across the U.S. and Europe. All right, excellent. Just beginning. Yeah. All right. And the focus is not really uh, the the casing for lithium-ion batteries, but it's really more on the on the smart grid uh, software side. Or there's there's some immediate opportunities to yeah. take weight out of a lithium-ion battery. Battery. Okay. By replacing the copper uh, anode with uh, a magnesium electrode yeah. that has a uh, surface treatment 
that uh, gives it the uh, same uh, chemical properties as copper has in mm -hmm. a lithium ion cell. Okay. So we get a big chunk of weight out of the cell by substituting magnesium, a low density material uh, for copper. And we so, get weight out of the housing uh, two ways. One, because it's mostly a magnesium alloy for the housing, but it's designed along the lines of what uh, BYD uh, does in China with um, what they call a blade design, a rectangular mm. cross-section that brings uh, torsional stiffness and part of Galaxy's network, uh, we have Galaxy um, uh, Transportation. It's a team of people who comes from the racing, uh, race car industry. <laughs> so uh, integrating the structure of the battery housing into the structure of the car, oh, okay. you can reduce the weight because the function of stiffness can be provided both from the housing of ah, the okay. battery and the structure. Today, okay. people just drop little uh, round cylinders in a box and put a, a cap on top and on the bottom, but that's not a structural unit, it's just a box. Yeah. So use the strength of the housing and the design um, is convenient because you don't have to have active cooling. Mm. And you can do quick recharge without active cooling uh, as well. So there's a number of benefits um, to this uh, thought process of how to hybridize the benefits of lightweight um, on the uh, battery and structure side. Yeah. So how much is the, the weight reduction potential for, from for magnesium for the lithium ion battery for by, when you replace the electrode and the 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 case uh, it's at the outset it's a little under 20 percent yeah there's a meaningful initial opportunity for weight reduction yeah. because copper is is the heavy hitter so to speak in the cell and um this can work Uh, without needing the weight or, and without the cost yeah. uh, of copper. Yeah. And when you mentioned the, when you use the, the battery as a structural component of the total car, so what can you still replace the battery without? Yes. That the, the, the batteries the are. Apart? Yeah. The, the um, just for the batteries load, yeah. um, fit into a, it's kind of like, um, the way um, single axis trackers are designed with a torque tube. <laughs> so <clears throat> think about being able to swap out torque tubes on single axis trackers. You can swap out a torque tube battery. Okay. Uh, that's bringing the stiffness. It's actually easier in the battery case, but uh, because it's not It's not clamped to big wings of solar panels, but yeah. it's it's uh, the structural advantage uh, of um, the uh, single axis tracker designs built around um, you know it, the difference between having uh, a round cylinder or a square cross section tube for a single axis tracker. There are trade offs that you can make. 
take that same thinking not it doesn't map one for one with the functional need yeah. but the the uh mechanical property side um uh, all of the know-how exists for uh, running models of the strength of the materials in the configuration options that are available yeah. and um they're uh readily uh replaced within the uh assembly that's the receptacle for the battery mm -hmm. and and it serves as uh where the the termination automatically um latches plus and minus links into that receptacle easily yeah and um another thing you mentioned was the the circular circular design of of battery cell uh, cells and the the blade design of of byd so first of all, um, is BYD the only one who does the the blade type design? And uh... they they are, I think, the first ones to introduce it, yeah. um, and um, they um, license it without a royalty uh, fee. Uh, yeah. It's a really good idea, and part of um, you know that the history of thinking that batteries are round cylinders. Uh, we all carry that bag of old thinking every time we walk out the front door of our homes and uh, being able to think about the design in a different way uh, opens up the nice part. There's some great YouTube videos that BYD has produced showing the blade battery design uh, yeah. that explains it far better than uh me trying to articulate it here uh okay. without video yeah excellent excellent so we 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 jumped a little from you being at enrel now we are at at galaxy so yes. uh we need we need to fill that gap um so we, you left enrel uh you started green star the, yes. the foundation uh -huh. and that, that was that's when now the mid 90s or something or late late 90s okay uh, and in the late 90s, I also uh, joined Winfried Hoffman at uh, ASC Americas, it uh -huh. previously Angebante uh, Solar Energy, uh, based in Alzenau. Um, yeah. And uh, they acquired, or they were owned at the time by RWE. And then uh, that piece of the business was acquired by Tessog uh, and uh, ASC. Uh, in Alzenau, acquired the uh, mobile solar business in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And so mobile solar became ASC Americas. Okay. So I uh, joined working with uh, Winfried and the team in Alzenau um, as part of joining ASC Americas. This was um, edge defined film fed growth, it was ribbon silicon. All right. Okay. Rather, yep. rather than um, uh, single crystal uh, cylinders, so the goal there was um, throw away less silicon as sawdust yeah. uh, by making a ribbon, uh. um, and it, it, the silicon uh, was uh, uh, drawn through a graphite die to yeah. shape an eight-sided octagon, which had sides that were 100 or 150 millimeters mm. 
to match the wafer size, one of the dimensions of standard wafers being used at the, at, at the year 2000. Yeah. Okay, excellent. And then, so ASE and, and mobile, we, we got that bridge. And where, do, where did you go after mobile? I went to SunPower. All right. Um, okay. And SunPower was um, looking to get uh, investors to scale uh, interdigitated back contact cells. Yeah. Pierre Verlinden had worked at SunPower. Yeah. Ron Mercord, some of the very, uh, along with Dick Swanson, the founder of SunPower, yeah. incredibly brilliant people, yeah. uh, all had uh, some common thread linked to SunPower at some point. Yeah. Uh, I joined SunPower to work with uh, Dick Swanson and his team to put the business plan together to get the financing. So, so when is that? When, when, when did you join SunPower? Um, uh, 2000. And one, October of 2001. Okay. Uh, so during 2002, we were trying to raise money. Okay. And TJ Rogers from Cypress Semiconductor um, ended up uh, bringing his financial horsepower to SunPower. And we uh, initially set up pilot manufacturing in Round Rock, Texas, just outside of Austin where Cypress Semiconductor had a fab, uh, an, an a, a, uh, integrated circuit fab line. And um, the uh, chips produced in Texas were shipped to the Philippines for packaging. Yeah. So as SunPower scaled, we ran a pilot line in Texas and then scaled the manufacturing in the Philippines uh, I think at that point, Cyprus probably had 18,000 employees in the Philippines. Mm. So there were a lot of very good people to work with for the first factory for interdigitated back contact cells with SunPower. Yeah. yeah. All right. Excellent. And um, so this runs now as Maxion. Um, so the, the SunPower later kind of reorganized their, their, their business. Yeah, um, and IBC solar cells um, are again on the rise. I would say um, still a, a small portion, but uh, there's there's a continued interest and in, in, um, rising interest in in uh, this the cell concept. But it dates back to a yeah a few years. Yeah. So uh, and then SunPower. Uh, then I went to Applied Materials. Okay. I was hired. Applied Materials at the time was in the uh, had been in the business and still is in the business of yeah. providing equipment for uh, the semiconductor industry manufacturing sure, yeah. and for the large area flat panel display uh, yeah. manufacturing. And I was hired to set up a solar uh, division at SunPower yeah. uh, in 2006. Mm. By that point, it was a lot easier to hire people into solar. Uh, yeah. 30 years before and um, from between 2006 we went from uh, having no business to selling uh, over two billion dollars a year by 2010 yeah. we went from zero to over two billion in four years yeah excellent excellent amazing so, um and then after applied that, that's where did you then 
Uh, then I was at the Department of Energy, okay. uh, running the Solar Energy Technology Office uh, yeah. for uh, the U.S. DOE. Yeah. So you decided on which technology um, is worthwhile being being funded. I assume that. Well, actually, the the independent reviewers <laughs> are, are the ones who review proposals of what work should be funded. All right. Uh, the, the job is is more about defining categories for activity. So like, uh, you know, lowering a solar panel cost, of course, is one part, but integrating solar into the grid mm -hmm. is a big part of the work that's being done. Yeah. Um, tackling soft costs, all of the permitting costs and other costs associated with deployment of rooftop systems, yeah. uh, bringing solar to um, lesser, uh, well-off communities, mm. uh, those are all themes that are important uh, to the kind of work that's done at the Department of Energy. Yeah. Um, I just did an analysis on, uh, on what my guests say, what is required to bring solar to the next level. And uh, I mean, it's not a big population. It's, uh, I think back then it was uh, 13 people. But anyhow, it was like more than 50% said that the key is to improve the regulatory um, section just to simply the to make it easier to uh, deploy solar right to bring it onto the roof uh, to feed into the grid just to get rid of all the let's say man-made obstacles it's less about technology yeah. costs efficiency etc reliability it's really more on the uh, regulatory level yeah w would you would you share that opinion i think uh even more important is consistency over time on the, so, on the political level. Yes, yeah. because here in democracies, every time there's an election, the yeah. person who gets elected usually says the person before them had it all wrong. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they change whatever was underway to their way. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's the source of major perturbation. When you think, what's, what's the half-life of crystal and silicon technology? Mm. Well, maybe 30 years, 20 years. It's measured in decades. It's not like integrated circuits where a half-life of my laptop is 18 months. Mm. It's technology changes in the energy space, changes slowly. You need long-term consistent policy built around a, a strategy, a vision. And if that gets uh, turned around every few years because of an election, mm. it's very hard for anybody to reach the, the consensus for uh, tackling climate change that we need to have. The sort of the, the common thread that all of us need to be addressing And the best way we can find to collaborate and partner to get the momentum built and then to maintain it. Yeah. Um, so even if it's not the best idea, if it's consistent, you can adapt to whatever that, whatever that crazy pieces is. there yeah. are in that <laughs> equation yeah. and figure out how to circumvent them, live with them, get around them, <laughs> change the equation. But yeah. it, it's uh, very hard 
when things change on a very short time horizon relative to the changing of an infrastructure that has so much capital already sunk into it. Yeah. Excellent. Hey, and um, so DOE, and then from there, did you go straight to Galaxy or was there something? I spent uh, time seeing if I could get a manufacturing plant built up here in the U.S. called Violet Power. Ah, right, Violet, right. And um, wasn't able to raise the capital necessary to to, uh, carry that out. So uh, I went from, uh, from that. Uh, serving on the boards, I, I help a number of universities, which increasingly have entrepreneur programs. So students who have ideas for how to make businesses out of new technology, yeah. older guys like me who have had a lot of uh, experiences trying to solve problems can help, I think, in many ways, mentor students um, to navigate their way around problem areas and to navigate their way towards some successful new thinking, new ways of carrying out business. So I've got work that I do with three different universities here in California. All right, excellent. And uh, if you don't mind, I would switch a little bit topic and um, because I think it's it's pretty interesting with your long experience as a businessman and um, entrepreneur. How do you pick, how do you pick new hires, right? I mean, you 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 used to lead big teams, and uh, you need uh, the best talent, of course, always to get your ambitious uh, technology projects solved. Now, looking back, what's your what's your trick to get the to pick the best? make sure they're not like me (laughs) okay all right (laughs) you know you need you need somebody who thinks differently yeah to push back to get the best result uh by uh diversity of ideas diversity of experience diversity of culture Uh, That's why I've really enjoyed Green Star working in, I think, over 80 countries uh, with different cultures, um, figuring out how to communicate without words, um, being able to um, uh, adapt to uh, common themes that all of us who are human share with each other. Uh, and uh, come at it from different perspectives. Hmm. So how do you test in an interview that this person can push back and uh, tell you where to go? Because um, at, at, at the moment, a, yeah. <laughs> there, there's some, some you can do, but it's, it's uh, the chemistry outcome, uh, even if you had the perfect interview questions, it's not going to extrapolate very far into the second week on the job. So <laughs> I've, I've, uh, uh, a good example is one of the best um, technical people it was on the solar team and applied materials um, came from the organic PV background. Mm-hmm. And, and organic PV is interesting because it's so difficult 
to work with organic PV, you've had to deal with far more problems then a guy like me who's only mostly worried about silicon. Silicon, uh, crystal. Single silicon. element. Yeah. And so people with that uh, ability to um, bring some immediate benefit because they can help, they can understand uh, aspects of a problem and can contribute uh, right away in the organization and then can bring that background of thinking from a different uh, dimension uh, into the organization, but um, I, uh, my ability to interview people and predict isn't doesn't have a very high correlation coefficient. It, it's usually <laughs> just see what happens when you put the chemicals together and how that mix comes out. Yeah, and another um, question around um, let's say running a tech company is. The classic thing is you have a, a, a target, you know, you want to achieve whatever 90% by using whatever a new element to doing the contacts. How do you make a, how do you meet the, t the timeline, right? It's, it's so hard to predict any technology projects, right? Because there are yeah. so many uncertainties because you, you usually you don't know the path, how to get there. Right. And yeah. at the same time, there's a business uh, that needs to be fed with your innovation. So it's very important to meet kind of some timelines. How, how, how do you do it, right? Because I think uh, it's one of the yeah. trickiest situations, right? Uh, situ uh, trickiest uh, tasks, yeah. project pick, management, predicting timelines. Yeah. yeah. Pick one thing to measure. So uh, one of my favorite stories is uh, here in the US, uh, around Pittsburgh area, um, Carnegie Mellon University, you know, fabulous for automation and uh, advanced technologies. They were originally endowed with funds from Andrew Carnegie, who made his money in the steel industry. When Carnegie retired from running his company, he was hired as a consultant and he would go visit steel mills and they plant manager would give him a tour, walk around. And a, a, a good example of the story is one, one steel mill that he went to visit at the end of the day, the plant manager asked him, what advice do you have for us to improve our steel business? Yeah. And he said, could you give me a piece of chalk? And the manager went and got a piece of chalk out of the conference room and, he, and Carnegie wrote on the floor of the factory one. And then he drew a circle around the one. Plant manager said, well, what the heck is that? <laughs> and he said, you are producing one ton of steel a day. If you measure and you just track against tons per day, you will end up improving the performance of your plant. So he, he picked one clear metric that was Uh, easy to communicate to everybody in the organization. So everybody had a clear understanding of what that one meant and could um, make, use their good judgment and common sense. Empowering employees to use their good judgment and common sense is the secret to business success. 
and communicating a clear, crisp, easy to understand target, then you or I working in any company, if we know that one is the number and we want to get to 1.1 the next week, we can, the way we spend our time can help reinforce the efforts to get to 1.1. Yeah. You are empowered. Uh, I, you don't need to be micromanaged. You have the ability because you were able to clearly understand the metric to contribute your part. And um, far be it from me as a boss to tell you how to get to 1.1. I expect you to get to 1.1 and use your good judgment and common sense to to take the actions to help everybody reach that. That's, that's sort of a operating culture. Excellent. And, and that's what you applied in many of your previous jobs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it came out, I grew up on a farm and it was, you know, how many oranges <laughs> <laughs> were we able to haul to the market and how many crates? It was always a measure and I knew exactly Uh, you know, from the time I was eight years old, but whether I was helping increase the number of boxes of oranges or not. Okay, wonderful. Excellent. Hey, um, as always, uh, I, I would like to close the, the session today with the uh, final question, which is, uh, what does it take to take to get solar to the next level? So we already talked about the regulatory um, aspects and uh, you brought in the co consistency. Um, is it number one? And if it's number one, then what, what would be number two? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, um, what I think is important here is um, the autonomous grid so that okay. the, uh, the pieces that we each can bring in a way, it's similar to Andrew Carnegie and a clear way of having the decision-making be automated, like uh, autonomous vehicles driving, getting autonomous electrons to, to go where they need to go. Uh, the technology pieces, the scaling, the market is what helps drive the manufacturing side of the business. So what can we do to enable the market for our technology to be faster adopted and incorporated into the grid. Those are the um, hurdles that will help open up the demand for product to go into that market. That's mm. for me, the next level. The next level is uh, letting the grid network function without human intervention. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. So smart grids, right? I think that's the, the headline for, yep. for, for what you mentioned. Yep. Excellent. Charlie, um, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful ride uh, through your past and uh, um, present uh, solar journey. Thanks a lot for, for coming onto the show. Well, thanks for the invitation. It's uh, fun to see you, Torsten. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a long time. And all the best uh, with, with Galaxy Energy and uh, all the other um, interesting, fascinating projects that, that will come for you in, in the future. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much and good luck to you as well.
Thanks. Take care. Have a good day. Thanks. Excellent.